It's a nerd's eye view on health from the center and around the globe, where curiosity serves unity, claiming health is a personal responsibility, and whole health is the only health, mind, body, and spirit. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm grateful to introduce to you Dr. Ian Weinberg, who is a consultant neurosurgeon currently in practice in South Africa. His passion is the enhancement of wellness and performance by shifting mind states from a place of destructive emotions to one of integration and gratification. In 1992, he pioneered the application of psychoneuroimmunology into the clinical environment. Psychoneuroimmunology, or PNI for short, is the scientific study of the influences of mind states on immune function. I have been following Ian's posts and newsletters for some time, and I was really struck by a few things that I wanted him to come and share with you today, particularly mind state in relation to outcomes in COVID ICUs, and also to introduce to us his model, which he developed um, called the Triangles Model, which is based on the integration of neurosciences with psychoneuroimmunology. Welcome, Ian. Thank you, great to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled actually to have this chance to talk to you. I'm sure I could talk for hours. There's lots I wanna talk with him, but I really wanna start with an overview for our listeners of what psychoneuroimmunology is and how it's important for us to stand, understand it in the current context of the time we're in. The psychoneuroimmunology is a massive word. Um, we, call, we refer to it as PNI, psychoneuroimmunology, and as you indicated, it's the influences on the immune system by mind state. And mind state is cognitive function and emotional function in effect. So essentially, it's what you think and feel, uh, we now know has a direct bearing on the chemistry underpinning immune function. And there's a return arm as well. So you influence your immune system, but the chemistry of the immune system feeds back onto neurochemistry as well, which further influences cognitive and emotional function. So it's a two-way situation. And the implications of this are that if you're in a good space, you're going to enhance yourself. And let's say the universe will support you in the process. But if you're in a bad space, it will conspire against you. That's, that's really how it works. It's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. And so um, over many years, um, formally put together the model, the triangles model in 1992, but I've been involved with the evolution of PNI over the years and slowly incorporated into clinical practice. And at one stage was only one of two individuals who pioneered PNI into conventional practice. Uh, myself in South Africa and Carl Simonton in the US. Carl Simonton was an oncologist. Mm. And um, this, had, this was the first time it was used in a clinical environment. Before this, it had been researched in, a, in the animal environment and in 
psychology clinical environments, but not in medical clinical environments. And we began to see that with the cognitive intervention uh, in regard to cognitive and emotional function, we were starting to see significant improvements in outcomes, specifically as regards malignant tumors, chronic inflammation, and all the conditions that are underpinned by chronic inflammation, which is about 80% of all our illnesses, have an underpinning chronic inflammatory foundation. Mm -hmm. And PNI directly interfaces with inflammation, both acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. So for me, um, what was so profound about this whole study, this whole branch of called medical science, is that it formally brought this phenomenon of consciousness into the biomedical model. So the biomedical model was elevated from a pure mechanistic space into a place where human consciousness, cognitive and emotional um, components had a direct part to play in state of wellness, or state of illness, as well as the outcome from intervention uh, into illness, irrespective of what that particular modality of intervention was. So for me, that's really grown. And since I was in a, I found myself in a neuroscience environment. My, I'm a neurosurgeon, so neuroscience is, is the science which backs my standing, essentially. And here we had the integration of the neurosciences with immunology. I was in the most perfect position. So PNI for me was literally a half a step away mm -hmm. and always found it so strange that others hadn't seen the full implications in the profession and beyond of the fact that here is a vehicle that's just brought this phenomenon of human consciousness into the biomedical environment. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really the long answer to psychoneuroimmunology. For me, that speaks to a question of paradigm really, right? So when people are broad thinkers and like to connect dots, then we can make those integrations more naturally than if we are, say, wrapped up in a reductionist uh, paradigm where we have to take things, as you say, the, the mechanistic model of medicine versus the constructivist model of health, really. So yes. I, you know, and my story came from more constructivism, really. I'm originally trained traditionally, but then shifted quickly to understand understanding health requires more of that constructivist paradigm. I, I certainly saw this phenomena of PNI when I worked in I worked in neural rehab for a number of years in a in a hospital. And I would see people that certainly just had a stronger will to I didn't know how to characterize it, but it would be like a will to live or a decision and a and a wellness in their mind that would lead to the wellness in their body. And it was several years after that I began to study this phenomena of, of psychoneuroimmunology. But here you were in it in the 90s before I was even in university. So I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about this with you. Um, if we can draw a relationship even to, because one of the posts you wrote that really drew me to talk to you was the mind states of people within the COVID ICUs. 
that were that you could along with the nurses characterize could you elaborate on that for us sure so in my discussions with the nursing staff who knew where i came from in terms of both my professional and my pni engagement in fact I used to wear more than one hat. Those hats are all one now. It really doesn't matter. I mean, I've got a PNI and I've got a conventional neurosurgical hat. But in fact, I apply PNI whenever I see a gap in my conventional practice. So the nursing staff knew exactly where I was coming from and they knew what, what would um, be important for me to know. And so it transpired that there were, there were two real negative mind states. The one was extreme fear, an irrational fear. Um, of the illness and of its outcomes, irrespective of how the staff try to comfort the individual and to neutralize this extreme fear. And, and they talk about this fear prevailing throughout the period and never having a respite. And I saw that myself in, a, in my own, one of my closest friends who died from COVID, that towards the end, there was this extreme fear. It was almost a pathological fear, which we couldn't neutralize. Mm. Um, and that turned out to be one of the most important determinants for a bad outcome, mm. was this extreme fear. And we know it from, from the PNI perspective, that's well known. I mean, the studies that have been done on persistently raised levels of adrenaline and noradrenaline um, that trigger immune um, cells to produce inflammatory mediators. Um, it's so well known that that really brings about some very, very negative chemical and immune consequences. We know that it would seriously aggravate the cytokine storm on day eight, usually of, a, of the COVID infection, usually about day eight, um, when the virus is almost out the body already, and now this overheated immune system starts kicking in and causing its damage. Um, it, there are enough um, pathways understood whereby this adrenaline would aggravate an existing inflammatory process, in this particular case, an acute inflammatory process with the inflammatory mediators and the cytokine storm. So the extreme fear was pretty clear and it's what we almost expected to happen. And the second mind state was one of throwing in the towel. It's a hopeless, helpless type mind state. Um, in other words, already convinced that they are uh, not going to make it, irrespective of what is actually applied and what intervention is used. And that individual also would ultimately succumb, either get a very poor outcome in terms of their clinical situation may be predisposed to the long COVID situation or would succumb to the actual illness. So that became pretty clear in discussions with the staff, which corresponded exactly with the research and the literature that backs p &I. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that was pretty clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it begs a lot of questions really, but I think I'll park some of those. Um, for sure that hopelessness, hopelessness phenomena is very easy to observe, right? Even in, even in my short time working in hospitals, you know, five or six years collectively, 
you would see people be able to hang on for Christmas. And then once January came, they'd all say, okay, I'm done and they leave. And even in my early twenties, without any of this knowledge, you could observe, you could observe these simple truths about um, our mind state influencing our outcome. So it's, I guess it's no surprise that that's true in COVID, especially with fear being so rampant, disabling. Yeah, I think that this was a pandemic of fear. It was played, it was used, it was used to the detriment of many people. Um, it played into the hands of a prevailing agenda and a prevailing narrative. Yeah. And it's still being played. Yeah. And it became pretty obvious that it's being played when they took Omicron, which we had discovered in this part of the world to be a pretty mild illness across the board, yeah. across all age groups, across the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. It was a very mild illness. And they, they played up the hype. They played the hype yeah. to, to, to generate the same kind of fear consequences. And that became pretty clear to me. Once I saw that, after they had been um, exposed to the facts of the Omicron illness and still decided to play the narrative, mm -hmm. that became pretty clear that this had another agenda. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I want to pivot us a little bit here to your model, Ian, because when I read, and I know it's very complicated, so we'll just touch on it here and maybe we can do a follow-up to discuss it more deeply, but um, it really characterizes these archetypes and it, and it breaks down, you know, for our listeners into the left and right brain and the different functions that they, that they actually provide for us. But what I love about it is it actually kind of gives a framework to understand how some people remain curious in the face of this kind of era we're in where the narrative is so strong and compelling you to think one thing without asking questions. And we get into these left brain versus right brain situations. Could we, could you maybe try to, in a short um, moment here, bring us, bring our listeners to some understanding of this model? Because I think it's quite brilliant in its ability to frame what we're living. Um, well, thanks for that. I, I, I'm trying to work out where to pick it up from because it's, it really is that complicated. So we, we, when, when I actually give the workshop and the courses and they're on the online courses as well, we derive the triangles model first and then we talk about its application. Yeah. So what we had to do was, I mean, the triangles model, the reason for creating the triangles model in the first place was to create a, a, a platform which would incorporate the mind states, the chemistry, and the nurture heritages. Because in this particular model, the nurture heritage has a major part to play in the outcome, in the narrative of the individual and the outcome, the ultimate adult um, mind state. And so I needed some kind of vehicle to incorporate all those elements and then be able to make sense of it, to discuss it, to use it for instruction to patients and clients, and also to be able to communicate it to the patients themselves yeah. and to others. Yeah. So it, it really is a geometrical representation of the dynamics that are playing out in the mind states, the chemistry and the 
predisposition to illness. Um, and so we have archetypes, we derive certain archetypes, and then we work with those archetypes, and you get mixing and matching of archetypes. Yeah. Um, so we have the gold standard, which is the alpha person. And I must just add that the incorporation of the archetypes into the left and right brain is relatively new because the work, the research is relatively new. And to my absolute amazement, I found I was working with my archetypes and working independently with the left and right brain. And with the new research, they fused into one. So in fact, I now had a home with the archetypes. Some were left, some were right, and some were both. Yeah. And so that was, that's relatively new. Um, so we have this one particular predominant archetype, which we call the Bravo archetype, which is an individual who's um who sits in the left hemisphere which is the dominant hemisphere the rational hemisphere the language the calculations the strategy that's where this individual sits um they're averse to uncertainty so they have to create a cohesive whole that makes some kind of sense to them which they defend to the end mm -hmm. and this becomes their turf um they will defend and their favorite weapon is to um, discredit any information that's inconvenient to their worldview. It's all about themselves. It's all about my needs, my feelings, fear of, um, fear of failure, fear of loss, fear of not being acknowledged. Um, these are all the traits of the Bravo type who sits in the dominant left hemisphere and suppresses the right hemisphere actively suppresses the right hemisphere. Um, then we have the right hemisphere, and here we have um, big picture sensitivity, empathy, connection to emotion, in innovation, creativity, um, who's averse to inconsistency mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, averse to uncertainty, which is the driver or left hemisphere. So in the right hemisphere is the of these connections, and therefore, you get the alpha type who is feeding from both hemispheres. So the alpha, or the alpha bravo, a mixture of the two, is your ideal individual. So this is an individual who is strategic, is um, very much um, involved with language, calculation, executive frontal function, um, everything on the left. But it's tempered by this big picture sensitivity, this need to see things plausibly, this need to um, be sensitive to information and to have the courage, in fact, to even allow that in. Yeah. And so there's a lot of uh, bridging between left and right when it comes to the alpha type, who is ultimately your big picture person, but a rational person, who appreciates the need for logic and rationality and detail, but also is very connected to the bigger picture, emotion, plausibility, averse to inconsistency, and is creative and innovative. So that is your gold standard, your alpha feeding of two hemispheres. And then you have your individual who is very much lost in the right hemisphere, which is a bit of an unstructured place connected to emotion, innovative, yet devoid of the um, strategic, um, well-structured 
left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. so ultimately, if you're purely right and lost in creativity, innovation, but can't, don't have either self-confidence, self-esteem, or the logical rationality to bring it to market, as it were, the dynamic occurs where the person, which is now your Charlie type, is lost in the right hemisphere and would need to invite the bravo of the left hemisphere to take this innovation and make a hard copy out of it, make it pre presentable to the public. This is a real long way around and an indirect way of explaining what this is all about, because those are your three archetypes, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. But then you have nuances of them. And we also need to know where they've come from in terms of their nurture history, which is another whole story in itself, how they actually landed in those places, which is not a mystery once you understand the nurture dynamic and the narrative that followed from that particular dynamic. So those that have need to lock themselves up and suppress anything from the right hemisphere are the bravos in left, they band together, they created a convenient narrative, it became worth defending, it became a pretty presentable representation of the reality and they bought it and they promoted it and they supported it. And hence I refer to them as the captured half-brainers because they went along with the narrative and never ever allowed the subtle or the anti-narrative or the non-narrative um, information to permeate that picture. It was blocked out because they were essentially captured by the narrative. And uh, that's the way it's been. And so those of us who are getting a feed from that right hemisphere find this incredibly frustrating because we've got some real um, valuable information coming in from a big picture, innovative, sensitive dimension which is not being allowed into that narrative, which is held and guarded by the left hemisphere bravos. Mm -hmm. And as a result is missing a fortune of vital information, which would ultimately change the narrative mm -hmm. once that information was allowed in. And so, yeah, unfortunately that's where we found ourselves. And I've almost used my model, which by the way, has an online diagnostic or psychometric and I'm using my own psychometric to diagnose my own colleagues and others that are defending the narrative. And they're, they're living my triangles model. I can see all the archetypes sitting there and where they are and what they're doing. Hmm. So that's made it even more frustrating. Interesting, but frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And for the listeners, I'll include that in the show notes. Um, some links to Ian's website and his, his uh, assessments. But, you know, one of the things that I take away from what you've just said is the, these left brainers, they'll hold on to this um, this determination they've made, right? They've made a determination and it's rigid, and it doesn't even have to be plausible. And I think that's the most important piece here because if it doesn't have to be plausible, then what I've experienced, my experience in engaging people with questions, because I'm a curious person, so I ask questions. When I engage people with questions who live in this captured left brain, they don't respond to the questions, they will simply repeat their position or attack me. And I think that's been a very interesting phenomena as someone who maybe naively 
believed in science as a process and a place of inquiry as first, first and foremost, not a determinant. Um, so I, I think, I hope that the listeners can take from this, this even just a broad understanding at first of the left versus the right um, brain and how if we can find a way to be fueled by both, we can live a more balanced life and be just more, um, more human, actually. More Absolutely. human. Mm -hmm. so, so at the end of the day, sadly, I mean, they've done, the left hemispheres have diverged radically from the science because yes. it didn't have to be plausible. It just had to be complete. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Um, they were averse to incompleteness, essentially. In, in com they were averse to incompleteness and uncertainty. So they just had to, you know, plug the holes and make it sort of more complete, but still kept within their camp. And so, yeah, it never had to be plausible. And, and here comes the cruel take-home message from all of this, and that is science is not really all about logic and data. The science now has become determined by the emotional intelligence of the people. And mm. who would have imagined in our time that emotional intelligence could neutralize wisdom and logical thought? That's what's happened. That is exactly and what's happened. Poor, poor emotional intelligence has actually neutralized and undermined logic, rationality, and real science. That's happened in our lifetime. That's happened in our lifetime. Honestly, there are a lot of things that have kept me awake at night. And I've said this in other podcasts too, but this, this um, I'll be slightly dramatic and say this hijacking of science or the scientific method as it, as it were, has been one of the, my gravest concerns because what, you know, epistemology being the development of knowledge itself, if you hijack the process by, a, as you say very smartly, a lack of emotional intelligence now deciding and predetermining the outcome, well, how does that write the future of knowledge, truly? Yeah, that's where we found ourselves. We, we've actually um, arrived at a dark place evolution of man's intellect we've allowed we've arrived we've actually we're going to start moving backwards unless we start moving forwards again because the influences that we're talking about with destructive emotional intelligence which is neutralizing logic and rationality is set us is setting us up for reversed devolution we're going to devolve we evolved to this technological space but we're going to devolve now because of this destructive emotional intelligence. Well, that's, that's a lot to accept, really. I, um, I want to, before we lose you here, because our time is running short, I want to talk briefly about how does curiosity play a role in buffering us from that very fate? So here comes the problem. The curiosity emanates from the subjectivity of the individuals. It's, it's, it's impossible to change somebody. And it's also impossible to instill curiosity into somebody. Mm -hmm. All you can do is provide information and inspiration. 
at the end of the day, that's all a second person can do. Ultimately, it is a reflection of the person's subjectivity, their heritage, their narrative, their experiences that will position them to be curious or not. Mm-hmm. And it ba- is based on these archetypes. Mm-hmm. So all we can hope for is that there's going to be some receptivity to the information and hopefully the inspiration and the guidance that we're providing that may kickstart a process of curiosity. At the end of the day, when you talk about how can we instill curiosity, we're also talking about how can we instill change? Yeah. We can't change anybody. Yeah. It's difficult enough changing ourselves. Yeah. We can't change other people, but we can only provide the information, the inspiration, the guidance. Mm-hmm. That's really all we can do. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. Stay curious. Together, we can light the way to better health. Join us at growyourhealth.ca to learn more about how to add your light to the movement.